Bible Belt Heathen Podcast, and we are finally making a little bit of progress, or at least we kind of feels like we are, through our series on the development of the afterlife in Scripture. And the goal is to just see the differing views or the diverse views throughout Scripture about death and the afterlife, heaven, hell, uh, Sheol, Satan, those sorts of things, and just, just have the understanding that not everything is as coherent as we make it. You know, we just want to we just want to look and see those diverse views. And we have gone from, you know, dark and gloomy existence and Sheol and all the language associated with the dead to the resurrection of the entity of Israel or national Israel and then into a very brief introduction to Daniel into individual resurrection and then the arise of apocalyptic literature. So today we're going to take a closer look at apocalypticism and particularly at the non-canonical Jewish writing known as First Enoch and specifically chapters 1 through 36 known as the Book of the Watchers. So it's hard to underestimate the importance of the Enochic tradition to the development of later Jewish and Christian thought, especially in apocalypticism. And the Hermania commentary on First Enoch actually makes these statements. And it says, the sheer size, as well as the contents, historical context, and ongoing influence of this collection make it arguably the most important text in the corpus of Jewish literature from the Hellenistic and Roman periods. And then later on, they say, the answers and formulations that arise in this context and are attested in this writing will have a profound impact on the shape of emergent Christianity as it is documented in the New Testament. So it it is extremely important just to understand that a lot of the views of later Christianity doesn't actually come out of the Hebrew Bible, but out of non-canonical writings such as First Enoch. And that's not to say that these writings are, we'll say, quote-unquote, scripture, um, or they have the same authority as scripture, but they were very important for the formulation of later Christianity, for the gospel writers, and for Paul, and just for later Christianity into the modern era. And so I decided to have a whole episode on just this one book, or just this one topic, because as we go through the contents of the book, we will probably start to notice a few things that will make you say, hey, I actually recognize that story, and I didn't really know where it came from. And it might surprise some that these stories are not actually in our Bible, the Protestant Bible, but the book of Jude actually quotes First Enoch directly. And I would say the majority of people within the church don't know where our stories of Satan, the fallen angels, uh, heaven and hell actually come from. That is, until you listen to this episode and we talk about the book of First Enoch. We left off last time talking about the topic of the resurrection at the end of days. First for the nation, national resurrection, and then developing into a full-blown resurrection of individuals in the book of Daniel. So let's keep that in the back of our minds and ask another question that goes along with last week. So what about all the unnecessary suffering in the world? Let's say the death of a child, the starvation of the righteous people, the meek and humble getting trampled on, the sickness and pain that really just seems to come with living. 
For a polytheistic religion, the answer is easy. There are some bad gods that are wreaking havoc. But for a monotheistic religion, where there is only one god who is in control of the entire universe, we have a little problem. And a problem that people still, a few thousand years later, are still wrestling with. And are we to say that God is punishing innocent children because of the sins of their fathers, or where God is the cause of all the needless suffering in the world? This idea alone is the big hurdle for a lot of people today. And the ancient Israelites asked these same questions. So what was their solution? Well, God must have some sort of cosmic enemies who are opposed to him and is spreading evil in the world. And this idea of a cosmic enemy is another big aspect of apocalyptic literature, and scholars sometimes refer to it as a dualism. It's good versus evil. And in 1st Enoch, God's cosmic enemies are the fallen angels that rebel against him. And so, I bet that sounds all too familiar to some people. But let's take a little closer look. The oldest parts of 1st Enoch was composed sometime between the 4th century BCE and the 1st century BCE, so a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. It already existed, it was already in, in circulation, and was widely known before the, Christma, the Christian movement in the 1st century CE even existed. And the story of 1st Enoch is a, is a Jewish folk tale in a sense, and it's a continuation of the story in Genesis 6, which is the story story of the sons of God that saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and that they had sex with him and had children known as the Nephilim, told by the very ambiguous character known as Enoch, who never dies, but was taken by God in Genesis 5. So those very short verses get turned into this huge tradition with writings in the intertestamental period that kind of expand on those few verses, verses that you see in Genesis 5 and Genesis 6. And it's really built on just three verses, which is just incredible to think about. And I think everyone should read the book of First Enoch, especially chapters 1 through 36, just to see the imagination of some of the ancient Jewish people and to see where a lot of our stories come from. So, Let's start uh, at the beginning, make some observations as we go. So we're gonna start at chapter one, right in the beginning, and I, I'm gonna read quite a bit here, so um, I'll try to read slow and clear. Sometimes it's difficult to do. But so, First Enoch chapter one, it says, "'Mountains and high places will fall down and be frightened, "'and high hills shall be made low, "'and they shall melt like a honeycomb before the flame.'" And earth shall be rent asunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish. And there shall be a judgment upon all, including the righteous. And to all the righteous he will grant peace. He will preserve the elect, and kindness shall be upon them. They shall, be all, they shall all belong to God, and they shall prosper and be blessed. And the light of God shall shine unto them. Behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. A couple of very important things to notice here. We see the idea of a future judgment. 
in which God is going to come. He is going to judge the righteous and the wicked alike. And the righteous, they're given peace. And then the wicked, something happens to them. They will be destroyed. But notice, it doesn't say anything about eternal torment, but it's destruction. And so this image is the image of a giant law court where God is the judge and we are being judged by him for the things we have done in our lifetime. So moving on to chapter 6, this is 6.1. It says, In those days when the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose wives for ourselves from the among the daughters of man and beget us children. And Semeaza, being their leader, said unto them, I fear that perhaps you will not consent that this deed should be done, and I alone will become responsible for this great sin. So this is the extended account of Genesis 6, and this story continues in First Enoch, where the watchers, where these fallen angels had sex with the daughters of men, and they essentially rebel against God. And Notice here the name of the head fallen angel, Simeaza. It's not Satan. It's not Lucifer. It's not the devil. So just keep that in your mind. And we haven't seen the development of our mo of our modern enemy of God yet, the adversary or Satan. But you can see where it's easy for that development to happen from this story, and how easy it is to just put our Satan or our devil in the place of one of these fallen angels, which does happen later on in the Christian tradition. So continuing on, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 10. It says, And then spoke the Most High, the Great and Holy One, and he sent a serial to the son of Lamech, saying, Tell him in my name, hide yourself, and reveal to him the end of what is coming, for the earth and everything will be destroyed, and the deluge is about to come upon all the earth, and all that is in it will be destroyed. And now instruct him, in order that he may flee, and his seed will be preserved, preserved for all generations. And secondly, the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and throw him into the darkness. And he made a hole in the desert, which was in Dudael, and cast him there. He threw on top of him rugged and sharp rocks, and he covered his face in order that he may not see light and in order that he may be sent into the fire on the great day of judgment. So this is this is the account of the flood. This is this is another take on the uh, flood where Noah is, you know, told to build a boat. Everybody should know that story. Um, and we also see God commissioning certain archangels to bind Azazel and to throw him into darkness. There's the idea of darkness again. And so Raphael dug a hole in the desert. And I think the key here is that Azazel is being cast down into the earth. There's that spatial language again, into a place of darkness. Now we get this little interesting statement, the fire on the day of judgment. So we don't get any detail here about eternal eternal torture or hell, but we do get the imagery of fire, which is later developed into a fiery, tormenting 
place of torture in later Christian thought. And so the last passage we're going to look at is in chapter 22 of 1st Enoch. And Enoch is taken to the far west of the earth by the angels where he sees the place the dead are kept. And this is really, really interesting. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's pretty long, but I will skim through a lot of the important parts. So this is 1st Enoch 22. It says, from there I traveled to another place, and he showed to me another great and high mountain of stick, stiff rock in the west. There were four hollow places in it, having depth and exceeding smoothness, three of them dark and one shining, with a spring of water coming between it. And I said, how smooth are these hollows, great depths and dark places in the vision. Then Raphael, who is one of the angels or the holy angels who was with me answered and said to me these places are hollow in order to gather together the spirits of the dead souls for this very thing they are judged to gather together here all the souls of humans and these places for their reception were made until the day of their judgment until the division and limitation of time in which the great judgment will be with them so skipping ahead a little bit, it says, Then I asked about the whole circumference, why the one is separated from the other. And he answered me, saying, These three were made to separate the spirits of the dead. And so it is separated for the spirits of the righteous, where the spring of water is shining in it. And so it was created by the sinners when they die and are buried in the earth. And judgment has not happened to them in their life. Their spirits are separated here for this great torture until the day of judgment by whips and tortures of the accursed. It was a recompense of the spirits until eternity. He will bind them there until eternity. In this way, there is a separation for the spirits of those petitioning. Any who are revealed concerning the destruction when they were murdered in the days of the sinners. And in this way, it is created for the spirits of the humans. Any who will not be holy, but sinners, any who are ungodly, and they will be companions with the lawless. But the spirits, because the oppressors were here punished the smaller of them, they will not be punished in the day of judgment, nor will they rise from there. Then I blessed the Lord of glory, and I said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the ruler of righteousness, who rules for eternity. So there's a lot of information here, but notice a few things. Notice that where the dead are gathered is a temporary holding place until the judgment, the future judgment of the earth. It's not a permanent home for the dead. The spirits of the dead are waiting for final judgment. It's kind of a intermediate place. And so while they are there, they are petitioning to God. So we see again the image of a law court in which God is the judge and the people are petitioning to him, trying to basically plead their case. And there are different compartments of the dead. And there's some ambiguity here. Some say there's four compartments. Some say there's three. And the text isn't exactly clear. But we see a compartment for the sinners that were not judged in their lifetime. And here the punishment is happening ahead of the judgment day. So this was the ancient Israelites way of thinking about, hey, why are all of these wicked people flourishing during life? Why do they get rich? Why do they get everything? And then they just die and everybody has the same fate. Well, this is the Israelites way of making sense of that, that after death, there has to be some sort of judgment on them. So in the book of First Enoch, they are being tortured in this hole in the ground or in their compartment. 
but this compartment is only for the wicked that didn't receive any kind of judgment on earth. There is another compartment for people who are apparently not the righteous, but who are petitioning until judgment. And there are quite a few interpretive issues with those verses, but it seems to be some sort of in-between the righteous and the wicked. They are kind of morally neutral. They're not the people of Israel or the righteous people, but they're also not these wicked people who are being tormented. And the phrase, nor will they rise from there, suggests that these people aren't being punished, but they also won't rise from their dark, gloomy pit. They just kind of stay there. So it's kind of like a like a neutral or an in-between, the two. And the phrase also suggests that there will be a resurrection at the final judgment. There will be a, a bodily resurrection at the final judgment, which we've seen in other passages in the Hebrew Bible. So that's just a quick summary, but I really think everyone should read First Enoch just to get an idea of what it's all about. And you start to see a lot of the themes that we are used to hearing on Sundays. And it's really important for the study of Jesus and the New Testament authors. And we see images of coming judgment, uh, future resurrection, a place of the dead. We see fallen angels. We see the image of fire now as punishment. We see blessings and rewards for the righteous and then punishment after the death of the wicked. And all of these are important images that you need to keep in your back pocket as we continue into the New Testament. And they're almost like they're ingredients. They're there. They exist in the culture, just ready to be used. And so now we need to turn to the New Testament and see how they are using these ingredients or they're using these images. You know, does does Jesus believe in uh, rewards and punishment after death? Or is he, does he just believe in the resurrection of the body at the future judgment? You know, it's those type of things. They're there in the culture. So how do they use them? And there's one last thing before we wrap up that I think that's worth men mentioning before we go on to the next episode, which we start uh, our development into the New Testament. It's that this development that we've been talking about, it doesn't happen linearly, meaning that we don't go from dark and gloomy directly into national resurrection, directly into individual resurrection, and then directly into rewards and punishments in kind of a line. And not everyone believed the same thing in the first century AD. And actually, according to Josephus, which is the famous historian at the time of Jesus, uh, he wrote the um, he wrote the book The Antiquities of the Jews, which is extremely popular in academic circles. And he said that different Jewish groups adopted different views of the afterlife. So they took these ingredients that we've been talking about and they used them differently. So the Sadducees, which you hear about in the New Testament, they didn't believe in a resurrection or rewards and punishments after death, according to Josephus. And then you have the Pharisees, which had a very robust view of the afterlife and resurrection and what happens at the final judgment. And then you have the Essenes, which you don't really hear about in the New Testament is kind of the Qumran community, uh, where a Jewish sect that existed before and around the time of Jesus. And this community um, is, like I said, isn't explicitly mentioned in the New Testament, but Josephus says that their view of the afterlife was more like the Greeks. They adopted more of a Greek view where the body is some sort of prison and the soul is freed from the body after death. It's more of a Greek 
uh, philosophical view of the afterlife. And so we have these differing views by different groups. And so now we need to look at the question of what images do Paul, Jesus, or the gospel writers use when discussing the afterlife? What, what images or ingredients are they going to use? And that is where we are headed next. We are looking at kind of an overall view of the New Testament, and we are actually going to start with Paul. So until next time on the Bible Belt Heathen Podcast.